This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi and welcome to the New Books Network seminar. I just spoke with Johanna Drucker about her really amazing new book, Graphesis, Visual Forms of Knowledge Production. This just came out in the Metalab series of Harvard University Press in 2014. And if you are even remotely interested in becoming a more informed reader and producer of objects in the visual environment and, you know, expanding your notion of what counts under the rubric of the visual environment, you must read this book. Um, this is an, uh, an absolute must read, I think, for anyone working in humanistic disciplines right now. Um, who are involved in producing text, um, producing anything on the web, producing books, articles. I mean, it's really that broadly applicable to the, the basics of the practice of what we do. So among many, many things that the book is doing, what it does is try to help us develop a kind of visual epistemology for understanding how graphics work, um, for helping us re-understand and sort of rethink what constitutes part of the designed visual um, graphic environment, including kinds of objects that we tend to kind of take for granted simply as texts, and also to think about what a more engaged, critical, humanistic approach to visualizing information might look like and the kinds of opportunities for composition, for reading, for production, um, and you know, for writing that it can produce to, to have this kind of encounter between a critical sensibility and a design sensibility. Sensibility. So it's a really fascinating book. Um, I'm going to, again, assign it all over the place. Um, it's really, really useful also for thinking about your own practice as a writer and a reader. So it was a great pleasure and quite an honor to talk with Johanna about it. Um, I hope you enjoy listening to it and especially stay tuned for the end where she talks about some of the projects she's working on right now that are coming out of a critical attention to these problems. It's just a fascinating field. It's a fascinating book. And I hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. I'm here today to talk with Johanna Drucker about her new book, Graphesis, Visual Forms of Knowledge Production. Welcome to the New Books Network seminar, Johanna, and thanks very, very much for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you. So the book that we're talking about, and we'll, we'll get into the details, um, this is about uh, visual language production or uh, visual knowledge production. It's an amazing, um, not only, I think, contribution to several different uh, fields, and this is why I'm excited to feature this on the New Books Network seminar, but it's also a really evocative, very beautiful, and very inspiring visual and material object. So we have a lot to talk about in the next hour. Can you start us off by saying just a little bit about what brought you to this project? Um, where does this fit within your larger research trajectory? And how did you come to decide to create um, a book-length object on this topic of this nature? Sure. Uh, the project really got 
focused during the year that I was at the Stanford Humanities Center. So I'm very appreciative um, uh, of having had that opportunity. It was a wonderful environment for study and research and a, a really nice community within the um, Humanities Center itself. Um, but the project has much longer roots. That year was 2008-2009. And I've been making um, books for all of my adult life. I'm been a letterpress printer and I've designed, written, and, um, you know, sort of uh, produced uh, books and and been really interested in format and the ways in which the semantics, uh, interested in calling attention to the semantic structure of format in the codex form, in the book form. And uh, the other side of my life, um, well, there's several sides, but the other side is one major strain in my scholarship has always been the visual aspects of meaning production. So my dissertation work when I was at Berkeley um, was uh, focused on experimental typography and modern art and the way in which typographic innovation contributed to meaning production, um, both at a kind of granular linguistic level, but also at a kind of more social semiotic level. Um, but I'm, I'm, I've just always also been very interested in the sort of problematic of uh, visuality and knowledge. So that particular strain, which we can tease out in an in, ahead, um, is something that I feel quite passionate about, that the uh, sort of Western tradition and has tended to think about knowledge production, especially in the sciences and in the humanities, as linked to text and sometimes to numerical notation systems, even though a tremendous amount of knowledge depends upon visuality and visual forms in in reproduction and circulation. So honestly, there have been so many uh, sort of themes that have crossed my work as an artist, as a designer, as a writer, as a scholar, as a teacher um, for the last 25, 30 years, um, that the themes that show up now crystallized in a formal way in this project, um, have been touched on at different points in different projects, um, certainly, um, you know, uh, for the last, uh, uh, across the last three decades. Now, the way um, in particular that they're visually and materially crystallized in this book is really, really striking. It, um, In terms of design, it's a really inspiring and really amazing object. It doesn't open with a table of contents, for example. It opens with an overview on the flaps open up or the cover flaps open up and there's text actually inside of them. Uh, the text uh, appears in different colors in the text. It's a really striking manifestation of the kinds of the kind of attentiveness rather to meaning coming out of a, a careful attention to um, design and visuality that the book speaks to and speaks for. And so it's a really amazing performance of exactly what it's, um, at least in my perspective, uh, from my perspective as a reader, what it's arguing. Can you talk a little bit about that design? For you, what are some of the most important ways in which the book as a material and visual object um, differs from conventional academic book production and perhaps um, speaks to some of the arguments that you're making in the book? 
Sure. Um, the credit for the design concept as well as the design execution really should go to Jeffrey Schnapp. Now, um, Jeffrey decided to do the Metalab series under the inspiration of Quentin Fiore's collaborations with Marshall McLuhan. And that's something that Jeffrey's been really interested in for quite some time. He's the founder of Metalab at, Har- at Harvard. And this Metalab series was pitched to Harvard University Press as a series that would take design seriously as part of its execution. Um, Jeffrey worked with a designer named Daniele Letta, an Italian designer, uh, to do the actual production of the books. And, you know, there was some dialogue back and forth as the projects developed, but I really ceded the design decisions to to Jeffrey and and Daniele. Um, You know, my one real criticism of the book is just that the images are so small and um, you know that's just one of the one of the problems with something in a sort of smallish format that's packed with with images and information um, is that it would be great to be able to make the visual arguments even more strongly in terms of the juxtapositions and, and contrasts but um, I think that you know what Jeffrey had in mind and what he asked um, each of his authors to do was um, to to, to write according to a, a format that Jeffrey designed. And he wanted each of us to think about an, an opening section to them, think in terms of a, 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 a set of, of chapters and to think in terms of what he called openings within the book, which would be areas in which kind of, you know, a, a spotlight would be focused on some issue, topic or idea. So I took those instructions quite seriously. And I think that um, Todd Presner and Yokowano and Jeffrey um, and Matt Battles, who was his collaborator, also executed those instructions for the three inaugural uh, Metalab books. So there's my book, uh, Jeffrey and Matt, Matthew's book, and um, Todd and, and Yo's book. And they all, they all follow the same format design. Mine has the red cover. Another one has a white cover. Another has a black cover, but the red, black, and white theme and the kind of overall design gives them a unity as a series. One of the things that does work really well in terms of the images on the page is they may not be huge, but because so much of the reader's attention is being pulled over the course of the argument to thinking carefully about the experience of visualizing a screen or a page, a surface, a spatial surface, because the images come sometimes embedded in the text, um, they're right in the margins of the text, your eye is forced to encounter them, not just as illustrations, but really as part of the reading experience much more organically than, at least for me, I typically encounter um, in an illustrated academic book. So in that way, I think it works really, really well. Yeah, they're not illustrations. And I think what you're pointing out is that they are in many ways the, you know, as primary within the text as the the verbal text is. Um, I will say just kind of, you know, along the way there was there was somebody, I won't say who, who said, how come there's so many illustrations in this book? Oh, and no. <laughs> it's a book about visual knowledge production. <laughs> so, but we got past that. <laughs> so at various stages, I mean, really throughout the whole fabric of the book, there's an encounter 
um, between, and, and you really are bringing out the um, the importance of this encounter between something that just before um, you were talking about before we started recording in terms of uh, the historical archive and contemporary design. So this is a book that encounters history, it uses an archive, it creates an archive, but it's not a history of visualization, right? It's something actually right. much more interesting, I think, um, than that. And so we'll get to that over the course of the conversation. And please feel free to get back to that at any point that you'd like. So the book actually opens um, when you open the cover, as I mentioned before, not with a table of contents, but with an overview. This overview sets the stage for the book and really introduces some key components of what the argument is going to be before we even get to a, a visual list of the contents. It presents a threefold task right at the beginning, and I'll just lay this out for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to uh, materially or physically encounter the book. Um, One, to study information graphics and understand how they work, to denaturalize the interface that's become familiar through daily use, and that's really, really important, and also to consider how to serve a humanistic agenda by considering how to visualize interpretation. And so we'll come to that especially, um, that last goal, I'm sure, um, toward the end of the book or toward the last parts of the book. Now, you um, raise in this early part of the book, in this overview, the notion of a visual epistemology. So for listeners, again, who aren't familiar um, with this concept, can you just kind of briefly um, open that up a little bit for us? What for you um, is important for us to understand about how you're raising and using the notion visual epistemology? Sure. It's a fairly straightforward concept, which is simply to assert that there are ways in which knowledge is actually produced within a visual environment and produced graphically. And, of course, there are many implications that follow from that. Um, I'll give an example. Um, And, again, it's not my example. It comes out of the literature, which, by the way, is quite small. Um, It's a very small literature if we start looking for people who've written about this particular topic, and that's also indicative um, of the issues involved. Um, But William Ivins in his, um, you know, very uh, famous book on prints and visual communication talks about the ways in which transformations of print technology in the early um, Renaissance in Western Europe um, in the late 15th and into the 16th century was engaged with or became engaged with um, reproduction in uh, copper plate engraving um, that came to replace woodblock and, and wood engraving. And the capacity of copper plate, which is an intaglio process, to m- retain detail and to uh, make explicit various characteristics of materials in the visual world that were being represented in these print formats allowed a level of scientific knowledge to become stabilized um, and go into circulation that was unprecedented before that time. So he uses the example of herbals and botanical images, for instance. Um, And uh, we can also think about um, astronomical images and cartographic images. They can't be replaced by verbal description, and they can't be replaced by numerical or quantitative representations. Um, If you're going to do wayfinding, you want a map. You know, if you're if you're going to dissect a um, you know a human corpse, you you want a, a medical illustration. So those are ways in which the world, as represented visually, um, you know, ha- 
become stabilized in various graphical techniques. Now, there's other issues we could take up here, and there are many forms of visualization, and they are, to some extent, the ones I'm more concerned with in this project that aren't strictly representational. In other words, there's no visual analog to which they are beholden. So if a graph or if a, if a, if a map has a relationship to the physical world, however distorted it might be through the projection techniques necessary to translate three-dimensional experience or form into a two-dimensional image, to the general way that cartography works. There are many other things that um, uh, don't have a visual um, uh, precedent. So if you're thinking about the way in which uh, statistical information is gathered and generated, um, then the production of an image has no um, it has no analog. It's either, you know it, it becomes the site um, in which meaning is produced, and partly because of the rhetorical force of a graph or a chart, which can make an argument through its visual means. Um, I can go on with other examples, but I'll pause and, and see if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think um, one of the things that this early part of the book does very explicitly and really, really well is calling our attention immediately to the fact that, as you put it here, most information visualizations are arguments made in graphical form. They are arguments. And taking that seriously and understanding them as producers of knowledge versus uh, sort of fixed displays of information is one of the touchstones, I think, that um, the parts of the book repeatedly come back to. Right. No, that's true. And it seems to me that the sort of timeliness of the project um, was that so so many people are now producing visualizations on their laptops and their devices because the kind of fluidity of quantitative information, the capacity to extract data from social media, from daily activity, and produce it as a chart or graph or or graphic um, has made these images ubiquitous. And yet nobody stops to think about well, how do I decode that? They they take many of the kind of contrast or comparisons as a given. Um, even the fact that you that you know a certain amount of um, critical knowledge is needed to distinguish between what I call the artifacts of a graphic and the substance of a graphic um, is something that most people don't think about. So, for instance, if you have a set of discrete data points, um, you know the uh, you know the cash register take um, on a boardwalk. Um, you know, on any given day, and you put that onto a graph as a scatter plot so that you have, oh, you know, $3.71 one day and $7 the next day and $45 the next day and then $200 the next day and $3 the day after that. That if you have those discrete points, you have one set of, um, you know, kind of image, one set of of, uh, graphical um, uh, points on which to kind of do a reading. But if you connect those dots with lines, you get these spikes, you know, you get these this mountain world, and then people start looking at the slope as if these things are related by some kind of rate of change. They're not connected in any way, shape, or form that way. They're just discrete points. So the difference between continuous graphs and discrete graphs um, is, you know, fundamental to understanding what it is you're actually reading in the graph. So so those are fundamental principles of, of graph literacy that are not particularly prevalent with 
um, within the cultures. No, nobody teaches graph literacy except probably in statistics and um, you know a few uh, you know data visualization um, classes. Exactly, and and it's when you raise it as an issue like this, it at least for me, you real I realize it's how odd it is that those of us who work in humanistic disciplines and you're explicitly um, engaging humanistic fields of inquiry here in the book, right? I mean, a lot of us teach writing effectively as part of what we do, and are consistently thinking of and teaching um, verbal arts in this way, right? We have style guides out the wazoo. We're constantly thinking about the ways that you know, stringing certain words together in one way versus presenting them in another way can dramatically affect the persuasiveness and the meaning of a written document and written forms of knowledge. But we don't have that or we haven't as yet um, uh, had the tools to really be able to do that and think that way with the visual forms of knowledge that are increasingly making up so much of our ecology of instruments and ecology of uh, or just ecology, knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think, again, uh, the extent to which the graphical user interface has become the kind of window through which, you know, or the surface on which or the screen, you know, within which um, we receive um, information, communication, um, you know, sort of this constant ongoing um, transactional, in you know, sort of space, the extent to which that has taken over um, you know, again, means that, you know, we live in an image-based world in a way that is really pretty unprecedented. I mean, before the graphical user interface um, and after the graphical user, user interface is, is, you know, that dividing line is um, really profound, I think. Um, and it's not like people haven't noticed. I mean, there's been a, a good literature on the subject of interface. Um, but I think, uh, again, the literature on interface doesn't necessarily oddly enough, go back and, and explicitly look at the graphical aspects. It tends to focus more on the social aspects or the, you know, the sort of, um, uh, you know, exchanges of self or persona, um, you know, media studies kinds of um, things, but not the graphicality, not, not the way in which graphicality itself enters into the structuring of, you know, constitutes the information itself. I mean, there's still a tendency to see media as a kind of transparent portal through which which information passes rather than to see it as the environment in which information is actually constructed. That's right. And speaking of interface, the next section of the book, after the overview and after the table of contents, is devoted to opening up some ways of thinking about history and digital media and visual media through um, an exploration of image, interpretation, and interface. So what this section of the book does, um, among many other things, is take us through a series of moments or episodes. Again, not a straightforwardly linear historical account. It's not trying to be that, but moments of encounter and engagement in a, a kind of a very uh, varied archive of different kinds of documents and different kinds of images where the relation of and the relatability of visuality and language has really been um, sort of at issue, right, or has really emerged 
as a relation and as a, or at least an attempt to create a relation. And so this includes um, sort of the ideas of knowledge as vision, um, for example, in literature, in the history of architecture. It includes uh, an attending to attempts to create languages of form, like um, 1856 Owen Jones' The Grammar of Ornament. And so listeners who are particularly interested in finding out about some of these moments, there's a rich archive of them here. You talk about dynamics of form and sort of extensions of some of these attempts to understanding dynamic systems. There's a really interesting discussion of gestalt principles and sort of coming out of 1930s um, studies of psychology and others. There's also a discussion in this part of the book that I think is really interesting that I'd, I'd love if you could open up a little bit. And this is... Uh, a section that looks at the relationship between graphics and editing, particularly with an attentiveness to technologies of framing, of reading, and ways that these issues take on a particular salience in web environments. So can you maybe open up this element of the book for us, the importance of editing and framing and the ways that graphics and web environments um, present a particular environment for thinking through this for you? Sure. And again, it's, a, it's actually a fairly straightforward set of principles once we, um, once we sort of stop and articulate them. Um, and uh, though, interestingly enough, even as recently as last week, I was in a conference environment where somebody described books as being long form texts. And I was sort of uh, amazed because to me, a book is not a long form text. It's a, it's a set of structured, um, you know, zones and components um, that perform intertextual relations and produce meaning across the combination of, of format and, and content. And the same could be said of a, of a web environment um, or of any kind of electronic environment, even if it's not networked. And that is that we um, have very quickly, um, you know, once you, you move away from the, you know, command line, um, you know, blinking, um, you know, green letters on the screen, um, I guess a black background, um, as soon as you move into any kind of graphical user interface, the conventions emerged very quickly to distinguish um, different areas of activity. So we read a word or we read a phrase or we read an open box according to where it sits within the graphical space. So we've become so used to the idea of the the search box, the menu bar, the navigation bar, um, but also the conventions that have emerged in various, um, you know, different, uh, you know, uh, across different kinds of content types within an internet environment. So we have different expectations of a blog than we do of the front page of the New York Times, different expectations of a search engine result than we do of, a, you know, a query to, um, you know, uh, a, a library interface. But we learn how to read the, the those things really fast. We we learn how to sort information according to the graphical codes in advance of reading the actual language. And so that's what I mean by graphical structures. And I think the reason I went back to things like gestalt principles and the semiotics of form and the formal languages of graphic design, all of that long history of ways of 
trying to systematize the ways that graphical features actually produce meaning is that again they've been there's been a tendency I think to think of those as having only to do with the graphic designer's art or with the architect's art um, and not to do with the humanistic engagement with the textual environment or the text image environment. And of course, where we get crossovers is in the film um, analysis world, where um, both from a production standpoint and from a reception standpoint, theories of editing have been, um, you know, quite explicit in pointing out the ways in which the structuring uh, principles uh, of of meaning um, are encoded into the film text itself, um, so that you know it's it's actually a graphical, you know, it's a set of graphical moves, a set of graphical strategies that allow you to connect, you know, shot reverse shot, continuity of action, continuity of place, and you know the same thing happens within a web environment or book environment, which is that we make connections across different zones um, of textual and visual uh, materials according to the way in which the relations um, structure those uh, you know, points of contact and, and exchange. And, and going back once again, just momentarily, to this relationship between um, this sort of contemporary design and these design issues and the historical archive, in a way that's also what a historian is doing with their archive, right? I mean, they're sort of making these connections and drawing out these connections and constellating um, mm-hmm. as a form of argument, I think, in a way that we don't usually articulate or acknowledge I mean, or acknowledge that as a form of argument. You know, that's usually taken for granted as just getting your materials together. Right. right? Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the still, you know, the, the sort of image for art historians is always the amazing Abby Warburg Nemesine project where, you know, he was laying out on the you know, little sort of fabric cork boards, you know, fabric covered cork boards or whatever, you know, all the possible sort of relations he could imagine between one image and another, um, according to formal, stylistic, um, you know, historical, you know, decorative features. And it was, it's constellation. And, you know, there's still the sense of like, why can't we do that yet? You know, where's the environment in which we can actually make these kinds of complex arguments? And, um, you know, it's, I mean, that's sort of the promise of, of hypertext and linking and, and the net, but um, it hasn't really happened. You know, we don't have a fluid compositional environment in which those kinds of, um, you know, spatialized arguments can actually be readily produced as in a compositional mode. They, they take an awful lot of deliberate effort behind the scenes to appear to a viewer. So it's not yet a, you know, it's not really an easy writing platform in which we can take primary materials, link them together, you know, shift around the way the argument kind of moves from object to object at different levels of granular while producing a kind of synthetic overview at the same time. But we'll get there. We'll get oh, there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we will. No, we're, I think we're getting there. I think yeah, there's, there's there. little whiffs and, um, and hints. But Okay, so speaking of some inspiring stuff, so after this section of the book that looks at, again, image interpretation and interface, um, the book switches to or moves to a section of what I think you referred to earlier on as openings in the book, and these are windows. So this is really interesting just from a user's perspective because it asks us simultaneously to slow down and encounter on a single page um, some similar notions, 
arguments that we just encountered in the previous section of the book, but arranged completely differently, and so you process it very differently. Um, this includes uh, windows on Walter Crane's tree, gestalt diagrams, and uh, graphic variables. And one of my favorites on making connections talks about Scott McCloud's work um, and his idea of framing. Um, so for me, I mean, there, there's a lot of favorites in this collection of windows, um, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the importance of um, this notion of framing and McLeod's work in terms of what you're doing. But I think maybe I'll instead ask, what is one or what are one or two of your favorite windows mm-hmm. um, in the book? And can you talk a little bit about that as a way of opening up these openings for listeners? Sure. Well, um, like you, I'm a big fan of Scott McLeod's work, so it's always um, wonderful to to be able to use it. I mean, it's so explicit and clear and his work on comics um, informed as it is by film editing um, has been I think a real revelation to many, many people. And plus the format in which he presents it is is in the format of a comic as well. So um, the thing that makes that work so compelling is um, again, uh, it, it fills a lacuna, I think, in the conceptual um, sort of training of of many uh, people, as well as in a kind of specific discipline-specific training, and what I mean is that on the conceptual level, I think um, when we look at images, people are much more likely to be trained in reading iconography or content or pictorial form. Um, you know, they read the thing, but it's very hard for people to articulate relations. And again, in our culture, at least, we don't have a really good developed language of relations. The idea that a relation is a substantive, um, that it's something that, you know, that there might be a typology of relations is something that I think he makes quite clear um, when he talks about editing conventions. Um, so I think that's really useful. I think the, um, the the idea of the openings was really nice. It was sort of, okay, let's, if, if you could put together, you know, just a, 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 a tiny set of crib sheets, you know, that sort of make you feel like, oh, here's the key to everything about graphics. And that's what you would put into these windows. So Jacques Bertin's, you know, seven graphic variables. I mean, it's, when you show that to um, students who are beginning to work in web design and you say, okay, if you're going to design um, an interface, figure out how you're going to use each of these graphic variables to carry a different value within the project, whether it's color or shape or texture or size. Um, they feel like, oh, I've really got something here. It's something I can can work with because it's it organizes the graphical world for them um, in a way that's very helpful. Um, I have to say, I'm I'm a big I'm I'm incredibly partial to Walter Crane. So Uh the chance to bring that Walter Crane um, tree from line and form in 1900 into uh, view for people who would never know Walter Crane was a great treat. Um, Crane was one of the turn of the century designer, illustrator figures who really committed himself to the systematic articulation of principles of graphical language. And again, it's a, it's a pretty early moment, 1900. I mean, I think it's long before um, Kandinsky's Point in Line and Plane. Um, and Crane is, is steeped in the decorative languages of the 19th century that um, somebody like Owen Jones has exhumed from vast amounts of study across cultures and, and time periods. Um, Owen Jones is 
Amazing Grammar of Ornament being this incredible compendium of redrawn motifs of decoration from Egyptian and Chinese and Persian and Native American, African um, environments, as well as Renaissance Italy and so forth. He's putting all that together in chromolithographic form so that it can be used for industry and to inspire textiles and wallpaper and material culture. Um, So chromolithography is the you know, sort of just amazing new technology of the 19th century. And it's luscious and beautiful and, you know, just allows access to, um, you know, a visual experience in a way that, again, is unprecedented. And there's Crane at the end of the uh, end of the 19th century, intellectually analyzing um, what these forms, you know, how they 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 emerge from common roots. Like, hmm, what you know, where does the arabesque come from? What is the meander? You know, what is the you know what are the lotus forms and so forth? And and that you know in that work, um, it, which is really foundational, he also an- anticipates the work of a you know art historian philosopher like Willem Warringer, who was a tremendous thinker about um, form and culture and uh, abstraction and empathy. And um, Warringer becomes a huge influence on Carl Jung and, you know, theories of the archetype um, and, uh, and, and others, you know, um, uh, uh, Joseph Campbell. Um, who are and uh, uh, Ernst Kassirer, who are really trying to look at the semiotics of symbolic form um, across time and culture. So, you know, it feels very outmoded now in terms of its universalist aims. It feels like a project of, of pseudoscientific modernism in some ways, but it's beautiful and interesting and I think, um, you know, presents itself in a graphically seductive and engaging way. And, and honestly, I mean, it's um, at the same time, just speaking from my own, you know, expertise or not expertise, but experience as uh, someone who works in world history, what's really interesting is that these kinds of arguments, the tracing of particular visual forms across and through media, so painting, um, paper, uh, fabric arts, is actually something that's now becoming really, really important and res- is resurgent in popularity um, as global sort of tracing global circulations right. in early modern in medieval and early modern worlds becomes such a hot and sexy topic. Yeah. People looking at, you know, Central Eurasia and Silk Road studies. This is what right. a lot of this field is all about now. Right. No, that's so true. I mean, um I had organized a conference up at Berkeley called Seeing Knowing in the first week weekend of September this year, um, thanks to the Minerva Foundation. Um and one of the speakers at that conference, which was about um you know, vision, cognition, and representation as a uh, archaeologist concerned with Bronze Age Europe, and he was looking at motifs that you know move from the geometric to the zoomorphic, and then back to this kind of reductive, minimalist, linear um, you know set of conventions. And he's asking questions about what does that mean in terms of the develop of development of cognition, and what are the environments of cultural transmission within which these motifs are, again, existing in a kind of ecology, a kind of knowledge ecology, Mm -hmm. cultural ecology. 
So it was really interesting. People are even doing this in um, sort of Chinese and Eurasian global histories by just by looking at blue and white, even the sort of color combination of blue and white. Very interesting. So, so we could talk about this right for another hour, but I'd like to move on to um, the rest of the book, which is seriously fascinating. So after this um, collection of windows, which again is really inspiring, and one of them, um, another one of my favorites addresses the book of the future, but I'm just going to uh, hold off on that for a moment because that's something that we'll come back to toward the end of the book. It's a pretty crazy image. It is a crazy, <laughs> it's so inspiring. I mean, it's it's kind of mind-blowing, <laughs> actually, as an image. And, and it's definitely something that we'll get back to before the end. Um, but after this, we move to a section on interpreting visualization, visualizing interpretation. Now, one of the really interesting things happening in this part of the book is you're bringing us back to the importance of a, a kind of basic distinction that's often invoked between representation and knowledge generation. And you talk here about, and you give us examples of some knowledge generators, right? Including train timetables, Raymond Lull's visualizations, including, I think at one point you say, a list of numbers to be added up, um, Venn's diagrams, Peirce's graphs. These are diagrams that perform the act of reasoning rather than representing it after the fact. So because this is such, I think, an important and kind of core concept here, can you maybe um, talk a little bit about that and and your um, feeling about the importance of this in the larger frame of the argument in this part of the book? Sure. Uh, And this is a little bit more complicated um, conceptually than the distinctions we've been making earlier, um, because it really has to do with how we understand what an image is and what it does. And, you know, I think even stating it that way, what an image is versus what it does begins to pull apart, um, you know, set these things in opposition to each other, at least distinguish them from each other. They're not really mutually uh, defining or mutually exclusive so much as they're distinct. And um, again, if you if you think about taking um, a bar chart and um, think about how it's made or how it's generated and you want to look at, oh, just changes in, you know, the percentage of gender in a population over over a time period, right? So how many male fruit flies were there and how many female fruit flies were there in any particular, you know, sort of cycle of, of, um, you know, of reproductive, uh, in any, you know, sort of reproductive cycles. So that would look like a bar chart. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, the differences in those quantities would be represented. And that image would stand in what I would call a stable relationship to the knowledge that it is showing. The knowledge is presumed to be stable I mean, we can argue about that, but then, you know, it's like, oh, okay, we counted up that many males and that many females. I mean, how they did that with fruit flies, we don't know. But anyway, they, you know, you count those things up and then you represent them and the relationship is stable, right? The quantities are more or less stable, you know, we'll, we'll allow that they're stable. And, but the relationship between the image and what you, what the knowledge is doesn't change. It, it's there. It's one thing. Um, but so the image is, in that sense, a representation of that information. But if you think about something like a train table or you think about something like a, um, a, a, a chart of the heavens or, um, you know, in some ways even a map, but a map's more problematic, um, but a train table 
or lulls diagrams with their vowels that are meant to allow you to um, meditate on all the different attributes of God. Um, they are generative images. They allow you to um, pose questions to the image, to the material, to the graphic, and get different answers back. So if I have a train table, I can say, well, if I leave at seven, but I need to stop off here and then I'll get a train back, but I don't want to take a local. What time will I do this if I get the express? Well, that puts me back too late for me to feel safe walking to my car. Um, it's generative. It allows you to run scenarios. Um, so, again, there's a, a very different, um, you know, sort of uh, set of possibilities in 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 those diagrams. Um, they are as. Uh, uh, John Bender and Michael Marinin said there are images that work. There are images that do things. Um, so I think there's a, a real difference between those, uh, a, a fundamental difference um, in the relationship between the graphic and what um, what its purpose is, as well as the kind of knowledge that it can present or represent um, in, in those two types of images. Do you think that? Do you think that's clear? Absolutely, absolutely. And and I'll ask ask you also to. Um, you know, we'll kind of continue along these lines because the next part of this part of the book kind of extends this sensibility to compare, contrast, to talk about in dialogue um, what you call here realist approaches and humanist approaches to visualization. And since this, again, seems like such a core part of the argumentative work that's happening here, I, I want to just pause and, and have a chance to talk about this a little bit. So as you put it um, in this part of the book, realist approaches to visualization depend upon the idea and I'm, I think just slightly paraphrasing here, if not um, quoting a lot of this, depend upon the idea that phenomena are observer-independent and can be characterized as data. And in contrast, you're suggesting an approach here that's not realist, but rather is humanist. A humanist approach to the qualitative display of graphical information is quite different from the approach that I just described. So can you talk about um, what uh, is distinct about this humanist approach you're advocating and how might we begin to actualize that according to um, what's happening in this part of the book? Sure. Um, and again, it's um, not necessarily a familiar or um, by any means shared um, uh, a set of assertions here. Um, but uh, essentially, the distinction I'm trying to make is that the world of scientific knowledge, and again, I have every respect in the world for, for scientific knowledge and for empiricism and for what it does, um, assumes that knowledge can be um, produced, um, that it somehow exists independently of the observer. So, and even the very structure of empirical science is de uh, depends upon the idea of repeatable results. And the notion of repeatable results suggests that there are, you know, externals that have no, that are not affected at all by um, reception or conditions of reception or even by conditions of production. So, you know, if I apply a certain amount of heat to my, um, into my pot, it'll take X amount of time 
time for a certain amount, a certain set volume of water to reach a boiling point. And the observation of that, as well as the, um, you know, sort of structure of that experiment um, is, it, you know, conducts, is conducted according to those kinds of principles. Knowledge is observer independent. It does not depend upon who is watching or who is doing the, doing the act, performing the act. But in a humanistic environment, um, the assertion is that no knowledge is observer independent, that in essence, reception is production. So um, if I have a literary text and I have, you know, 20 students read the same literary text, um, you know, their response to that text will pretty much, you know, if I were doing a statistical analysis of their understanding, would, you know, follow a kind of normal bell curve. There'd be a central kind of consensual zone and there'd be some outliers, you know, there'd be somebody, if we're reading Wuthering Heights, who thinks that, you know, Kathy was an idiot and Heathcliff was a villain, right? Or, you know, but most of them would think it was a great romantic love story filled with tragedy and so forth. Um, but the point is that um, the text itself um, doesn't enter into um, the experience of the reader in a direct mechanistic way. It has to be, it has to be engaged. It has to be produced. So again, this is just, you know, standard post-structuralism. And uh, so, but the, what that does in terms of our thinking about the world um, is to ask questions. And here I would invoke someone like Karen Barad, the theoretical physicist feminist at UC Santa Cruz, um, who's, book Meeting the Universe Halfway is a wonderful critique of observer-independent theories of scientific knowledge and, you know, sort of demonstrating that the um, engagement that we have with, um, you know, the the phenomena of the world um, is always from, um, is always a kind of intra-action. We, we are within the very phenomena that we are observing. And certainly that's been a tenet of belief in uh, physical sciences since the early part of the 20th century and the uncertainty principle and and quantum um, theories. But the humanists become, you know, when it comes to certainly to to graphics or statistics, they get suddenly very oddly positivist. You know, it's like, well, a graph is graph. And it's like, no, you know, graph is a text. (laughs) So, um, So I think one of the things that we've been trying to think about in the digital humanities is how might we create graphics that would begin to express humanistic points of view um, rather than simply take up the techniques, and I deliberately use that word techniques, that come out of the, out of the statistical um, sciences or come out of accounting or business or politi- what used to be called political arithmetic. Um, so to do that is a big challenge. So we can talk about that if you want. But, um, but the idea that knowledge is always observer dependent, that it's situated, that it is historical, that it's cultural, um, that our, even our capacity to know something is already a, an, an effect of our of our condition of education, growth, and, and, and training. And again, there's been plenty of work on this in terms of visuality. Um, you know, people see what they learn to see. I mean, you see what you know to look for. Um, there's no innocent eye, and the, the actual physical apparatus of the eye may not change very much, but the cognitive capacities change. And there's some evidence to suggest that actually the physiology of the eye will alter according to the kinds of tasks 
tasks than it is asked to perform on a repeated basis. So we are adaptive organisms. We're not mechanical things. So there's a whole set of considerations that come to bear once you um, enter into that system of belief that can't be brought into the conversation as long as you think that knowledge is observer independent, that it's repeatable, that it doesn't depend upon um, the situation of its production. Right. And there's actually um, one of the things I really like about this part of the book is that it doesn't just stop at critique, right? You're actually giving us um, some possible ways forward for starting to manifest and starting to realize a humanistic approach to the visualization of information. And there's this wonderful comparison at the end of that section of the book between the, you know, the classic um, diagram by Jon Snow of cholera, mm-hmm. mapping of cholera, and what it might look like if we thought about some of the visual parameters a little bit differently. So a kind of rather than um, demarking entities as or demarcating units as discrete bounded entities bringing a more kind of fuzzy logic mm-hmm. to the way even entities are manifest on the on a visualization you know thinking about scale divisions differently thinking about lines is not necessarily continuous and straight so there are all kinds of really concrete specific um, possibilities for how we might be able to realize this and I think that's really really useful and, and actually quite inspiring and part of the book. So as we move to the next part of the book, this is a book that, or this is a part of the book that really, um, uh, returns to, but also opens up in new ways some of the issues and themes that we've been talking about already. And this is a part of the book designed, um, or uh, devoted rather, to interface and interpretation. So in this part of the book, which we could easily talk about for another hour, I mean, <laughs> seriously, um, so I, I apologize that we won't be able to spend um, too much time on it, but I want to mark this as a particularly generative part of the book for listeners, even if we don't have a chance to talk about it that much. Um, This is a part of the book in which, among other things, you're really bringing out um, the elements of the book and the experience of reading the book that you talked about briefly before, right? The book as not just um, involving mise-en-page, but also mise-en-scene, so not just a, a, a unit to be or an illustration or a text, but also an environment for action, an environment that generates and enables a certain kind and shapes and constrains a certain kind of user experience and subjective experience. And so the book is put into a larger genealogy of and exploration of interfaces of various sorts. Um, So reader experiences and the kinds of objects and materialities that enable and shape those experiences that range from, you know, manuscript culture and the book all the way to the web environment um, of text and textuality that uh, many of us are working in now. And you're giving some really interesting examples here of some exemplary projects um, that I sort of um, explored a little bit on the web before we talked and are really um, inspiring just in terms of opening up possibilities for what it can look like to tell a story. Okay, so what I want to do here, there are so many different ways into this part of the book. I want to open this up by just inviting you um, to start talking or to inviting you or asking you if you could talk with us a little bit about something that you bring up at the very end of this chapter. And this is the idea of the future book. So for you, what does the future book look like? What are some of the exciting 
necessary um, and and really important um, to contend with possibilities for the book, what it can look like, how we should be thinking about making it and bringing it into being as we move into a future that's increasingly demanding an engagement with web-based platforms and interfaces. Sure, yeah. Um, I'll just answer that in one sentence, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, just briefly, just, just sum it up for in a right. way or two. Um, you know, I think, again, one of the assertions that um, uh, underpins that particular section is the, um, is the kind of call to recognize that when you're looking at format features in a book, in a traditional book, especially a scholarly book, um, is that you not think about them in terms of just, you know, design, um, but they think about them in terms of functionality. So what are the functions that these different elements perform? So, you know, headers are in place for a reason because they allow you to navigate, right? So there's navigation, there's wayfinding, there's, you know, orientation to where you are within the the whole there's there so there's a whole set of functionalities um, in the way in which print artifacts have come to be organized and so taking that principle and extending it into the web environment um, in, in means that in the first iterations what people did was to kind of imitate many features of the codex I mean there's all the bad simulation imitations the whole page drape problem and so forth um, but those are just kind of skew morphs um, but even so there's a kind of imprint of the way in which we understand the organization of knowledge in a graphical space that we, you know, have gotten from our experience of reading, whether it's newspapers, books, magazines, again, certain formats. And um, and so I think there's still a tendency not just to imitate those forms, but to think compositionally as writers and authors in terms of the way in which those structures offer to us the templates according to which we, you know, think our arguments. So, for instance, again, at the conference I mentioned before, this notion that the, you know, book is a long form text. Text um, was sort of a given, was sort of an assumption, and that what we were looking for in new web environments was a set of ways to transport content across different platforms. So if I have a textbook and I want it to be able to read, be read on a mobile device, I do a responsive design project, or if I want to put it on the web so that I can link it to all kinds of extra resources, I'm taking advantage of the web. But essentially, there hasn't been a change in thinking about composition in that set of moves or strategies. If by contrast, however, we imagine that our writing practices change because we begin to think differently about the role of the interpretive line, the narrative line, as it sits on top of dynamic databases, data mining tools, all kinds of analytics, then we have a very different relationship to our own writing practice. It isn't seen as something that just needs to be reformatted. It's seen as something that really gets reconceptualized. So if I'm writing within a database format, um, then I'm already thinking about the fact that underneath the narrative line or the synthetic line of argument is a whole set of combinatoric possibilities that can be pointed to and called on and, and called literally in algorithmic protocols um, into display as, I, as I'm working. So that's a completely different way of thinking um, you know, bounds are, books are bounded objects in a, in a physical sense and conceptual sense. And I do think, back to the frame issue, that boundedness is a condition of 
of signification. You know, things have to differentiate in order to mean. Um, but then frames are also contingent. They can be Im- imposed at different moments um, and at different scales. So thinking about boundedness um, of argument within the kind of potential of these electronic, networked, digital, algorithmic, data-driven environments, um, it, you know, it's a, it's, it presents a whole bunch of really interesting possibilities. So thinking about the graphical spaces in which we could work on these things is, is something I've been talking about with various of my colleagues. Um, Patrick Svensson, a colleague from EMEA Sweden, who was the founder of the HumLab there, um, and I have been talking about, well, what, what would the what would middleware look like if it were really metaware middleware um, that wasn't just a platform, it wasn't just a WordPress, for instance, but actually engaged with these uh, structural distinctions and and processual possibilities um, within the compositional space. So, you know, it's interesting to to play around with these ideas and, and, and start sketching and thinking and storyboarding. That was actually going to be my um, my next and my last question to you before we come to the conclusion is it, it how um, concretely and if you have an example in mind, if at all, some of these really thinking through and thinking about how to practice some of these notions are impacting or have impacted your own practice as a writer and maker of text. Sure. Well, you know, I worked on a number of different projects where we experimented with some of these ideas, the Ivanhoe Project at Spec Lab in Virginia, and then building on top of that a project that was, you know, sketched out, never developed, which is called Interpret. Um, And, you know, I dialogue with friends who are developing other kinds of platforms um, and, you know, visualization projects and working here with a colleague, Francis Dean, on some visualizations for his elaborate newscape project that will try to include uh, perspectival um, views and relative metrics and other things that I think are really humanistic and in principle. Um, but, you know, my own project at the moment is this uh, memoir that's uh, structured as a database, but with a narrative line. Um, And so, you know, it's really interesting to play around with what happens conceptually um, for me as a writer as I work back and forth across these different um, modes of of composition and, and of structure. So, you know, there's no substitute really for just engaging with these things um and it, plus it's fun and um you know <laughs> okay. so that was actually going to be my i'll kind of go backwards here for the conclusion that was going to be my final question but i'll ask it as my penultimate question um is this a memoir as a database with a narrative through line what you're uh, currently working on and if um this is what the focus of where the focus of your energy is now or at least one place where the focus of your energy is um do you want to maybe talk more about Sure. I have a couple of projects that are ongoing. And again, um, I guess I'm just trying to become more fluent in the language of um, electronic uh, composition and publishing. And, you know, I made letterpress books for 40 years. And I said to a friend yesterday, I can walk into a letterpress shop and basically paint with letterpress. Um, It's I'm so fluent. And yet the the screen space still remains for me a space of, you know, it's a lot of overhead. I don't have the fluency in, in that world that I do in say watercolor and drawing and, 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 you know, 
lino cut. Um, but so think about electronic publishing and um, ways in which it's developing have been really interesting for me. So I'm working on a couple different projects. One is a history of the book course book online um, that works with special collections materials at UCLA to create a, you know, a, a useful resource for studying the history of the book. Um, and that's built in a, in a platform called Drupal, which is a content management system, which is you know, pretty complicated. So just learning it was very, very useful and interesting. Um, but we also did a course book in WordPress um, and uh, for Digital Humanities 101, also fully available online and, and free to, to use. And again, that was a useful exercise. Um, and now working with um, the database memoir project um, to organize, it's, it's based on all of the books I wrote never published or thought I would write never wrote which is infinite but um but there's a lot of books i wrote never published creative books and so thinking about what just on a very basic level what's the you know what's the best use of a print um project in relationship to a web environment well print project becomes the kind of you know travel guide to the web environment stands on its own you can carry it with you you can read about you know all of these different sections but if you want to experience the full extent of a project you go online you download a pdf you explore the relationships it has to other objects and you have a different experience of it so all of that is is really interesting to me and of course i privileged to work in a wonderful environment with colleagues and students who are interested in exploring these issues with me. That's amazing. Well, um, all of these sound fabulous. Um, and the, the database project in particular, um, I would I can't wait till that's out. I uh, had a chance to talk with Hallam Stevens um, a few months ago, who just wrote a book on the history of digital uh, sort of digitalization and life, where he looks at the ways that an organism and a self are have to be translated and transformed ontologically to to translate them into database form and the ways that that produces a very different manifestation of life and of self. And so um, oh, I just, yeah, this is fabulous. I'll, I'll, when we, I'll, I'll okay. send you the link. <laughs> well, Johanna, thank you so much. This has been inspiring. It's been a pleasure. It's an amazing book. And I'm so grateful to you for spending the time to, to share this with us. Um, now, we didn't have a chance to talk about a million billion things that are in the book that we could have. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to uh, mention for listeners? No, I mean, I think we, we did touch on a lot of different things. And as you said, there's a, you know, it's a kind of condensed book. And um, in many ways, it's a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a short book. It's a small book in terms of words and, and, and format. Um, and uh, somebody said to me, well, well, this sort of feels like an abstract for, you know, a major work. And I said, yes, right. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but, but, you know, I just want your listeners to know that it's actually a fairly small um, book that's meant to be easy to read and easy to engage with, but that it, it has a kind of condensed um, feel to it because there is so much information in this field. And I think my hope really is that it will inspire an entire field of, of study that would, you know, focus on graphical forms of knowledge production and come to understand the ways in which the rich archive of historical materials is not a not a gallery of dead thought, but is in fact filled with imaginative possibilities for ways we might imagine um, thinking visually and graphically ahead. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure, and I'm really grateful. And congratulations on an amazing book. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. 
You've been listening to the New Books Network Seminar. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.